welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <laughs> that is one of the most interesting introductions I've ever had. <laughs> and also some of the most peppy intro music, so it's all downhill from there. Um, no, that was, that was great. It's fun to see them and see where, where they're going. Of course, I'm following on Instagram and all of those things. Uh, like was said, my name is Stephanie. I'm a, a church planter and pastor of a church called Mill City Church in Northeast Minneapolis. Uh, co-pastor there, and I think you got my, co, my co-pastor coming later on during the sabbatical. His name's Michael, so give him a really hard time. Uh, Mill City is about 10 years old, and so I remember uh, about seven and a half years ago meeting this guy named Micah who just started this new community called Awaken Community. And so it's been a long time. I've been praying for you all before any of you were here. I've known about what, what God's been doing through all of you in this neighborhood. And so it's just been, it's been really cool to, to pray for you over the years and to have some really fun conversations with Micah. Um, we like to get into some really fun debates. As you can imagine, it's really fun. Um, so Mill City worships at Sheridan School, which is in Northeast Minneapolis on the corner of University and Broadway. And I bring that up because I know you all are sponsoring with the Sheridan Story. And the Sheridan Story School uh, Backpack Program, sometimes it's called, Sending Food Home on the Weekends, started in our school through our church and now has over 170 or I think now 180 churches and community groups sponsoring schools in the Twin Cities. Is that not crazy? And so that's a... Yeah, right? That's amazing. So um, that was a very strategic plan. We knew how that was going to go. No, that's a joke. Obviously, only God can write a story like that. We were just trying to find a place that would please God, let us worship in your room. Like that's, that's how it started. And they let us 10 years ago start worshiping in Sheridan. And so we're going to be celebrating that this fall, which is awesome. Um, I, I just got married about a year ago to one of the strangest human beings I've ever met. And um, I don't know, they don't always warn you about these things. My husband's a filmmaker, his name's JD, and um, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, everybody's normal till you get to know him, you know? Except I already could tell he wasn't normal, but it's like you don't know how not normal they are until you live with them, I think is what I've discovered now, and I'm sure he thinks I'm completely normal, so it's been good. Um, I, I'm so glad to be here. It's such an honor because I've known about you all for so long, but never really been able to be here with you because obviously I'm usually across the river. But we are your cousins and across the river, um, and there's only one church in the Twin Cities. We just worship in different locations, right? So I'm so pleased to be here. Can we pray? And then I'll just jump into God's word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for this community. God, you've been doing a work here in this neighborhood for a long time. And it's such a privilege that this group of people has been able to join what you're doing here. God, you have been doing a work in the communities represented by everybody in this room, where they live, where they work, where they play, where they learn. And you have invited all of us to join in what you're doing in those spaces. What a privilege. God, I pray that as we today look in your word that you would uh, just speak to each one of us. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of something that you might want to say to these people that you just deeply, deeply love. God, may we be people who are different when we leave today than when we came in because of who you are and your transforming power and your presence, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, whenever I get a chance to just speak about whatever I want, which that's what Micah told all of us, just so you know. So be warned. He just said, like, do say whatever you want, which was a bold move. So... Whenever I get a chance to say whatever I want, um, I, I have a few kind of topics that I tend to gravitate towards, and one of those is leadership. Um, I love talking about leadership and what it means to be people who are leaders in the world as distinctly as Jesus' followers. What does it mean for us to be 
Jesus followers who are also leaders. And so some of you might identify yourself as a leader, some of you might not. But just so you know, my definition of leader is that whenever somebody chooses to be intentional with their influence, then they're a leader. You might not have a role, you might not have a title, but you all have influence. And if you decide to be intentional with that influence, I think then you've stepped into the space of a leader. And so uh, while I don't necessarily want to talk so much about what it looks like for all of us to be leaders, today what I want to, and next week, I'm with you next week, so hopefully this goes well and you come back. But hopefully over these next couple of weeks, what I want to talk about is Jesus leadership, how Jesus modeled what it looks like to be a leader in the world. And, uh, and that's, that's what I want to spend the time on. So hopefully that brings you back next week. All right. So I thought I'd start out with a story in regards to this topic because you don't really know me. I know a couple of you, but uh, I'm taking you all the way back to high school, okay, for me. So you have to imagine me about the same height, unfortunately, in high school, didn't get any taller then, and um, wearing much baggier jeans, much baggier jeans, and feeling like I'm about to hit high school. And somewhere, when I was a little kid, everyone said, wow, she's awfully strong-willed. And then somewhere in there, that became leadership. So my mom was really excited about that moment. Uh, So just for any of you who have strong-willed children, it could go either way. But for me, at some point it became leadership. And so I'm getting to high school and I'm thinking, all right, it's time for me to step into some, like maybe leadership roles. That's kind of what high school is about. And so I'm I'm starting to learn some of the first lessons of leadership in my, my young life at this time in high school at Minnehaha Academy, if any of you went there, go Red Hawks. And so I'm, I'm coming into high school, and I, the first lesson that I learned is that you can buy people's followership and their love with candy. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to run for student council, probably like secretary or something, and I'm going to get everyone to vote for me by giving them candy. So I hand, handed out those little Smarties candies, and I put a sticker on them that said, be a smarty, vote for Steffi. <laughs> that was my campaign slogan, and I got elected. <laughs> and so I was like... This is not that hard. Why do people make this seem so hard? What I found out pretty soon was a few more leadership lessons, like uh, you can't keep your campaign promises very easily, especially if your campaign promises had to do with things like more vending machines or donuts in every homeroom every single week. I did not think that would be that hard to deliver, but apparently it was, so that didn't go so well. And then I also learned other things, like that candy thing doesn't always work to get people to follow you. And you can't just, first of all, you run out of candy budget money. And second of all, it just doesn't always work like that. You can't just continue to lead people with candy and they'll just keep following you. I also learned probably one of the most important lessons as a leader in high school that I genuinely still think of today. And that is that if you're a leader, there's always gonna be some people that are disappointed. You can't please everybody. And so whenever you're leading, some of you are nodding because you lead and you know Everybody can't be, sometimes people are going to be disappointed, all right? And so I learned that this leadership lesson that I think could be summed up in a very popular meme that we'll put up here, stop trying to make everyone happy, you aren't chocolate. <laughs> so this, is a, this was a lesson for me in my life. And so then I started to realize sometimes leadership is just disappointing people at a rate they can stand. And that's a lesson that I learned at that season of life. So if anybody's not believing me about that, I would like you to raise your hand if you don't really like chocolate to prove that everybody can't be made happy, all right? Because these people don't even like chocolate, which is supposed to make everyone happy according to the memes. And the memes are always mostly right. So these are some of the things that I learned at this season of my life. And now, spend 20 years since the Be a Smarty Vote for Steffi campaign of 1997, and I've learned a lot more since then. 
I've read a ton about leadership theory. Uh, I, I love to, to observe leaders close up and from afar and try to learn from them, from their successes and their failures. I've been somebody who's tried to read a lot and learn a lot. And of course, I've learned a lot from trying to lead other people. Maybe some of you are students of leadership theory. And as I've learned all of these different things, what is something that consistently sticks out to me as a Jesus follower is that the leadership of Jesus seems to consistently look completely different than the leadership of the world. Jesus tends to flip on its head the leadership theories that seem to make sense in the world around us. Have you noticed that? Let me, let me just give you uh, just some examples of what I'm thinking about. Jesus has said, if you want to be influential, or people have said, if you want to be influential, you need to spend time with influencers. Does that sound like what Jesus has done? Here's some other ones. To be effective, you need to consider how you can have the most gifted people in all the roles below you. Sometimes people are like, make sure you have the right seat, people in the right seats on the bus. You heard this leadership theory? Nod so I know you're awake. Good. Uh, another leadership theory that I've heard is that if you really want people to feel like they can follow you, then you must project confidence all the time. All right? And so there was a really popular theory that went around for a little while called power posing. Does anybody remember that? It was really popular. So the idea would be that you would like stand in your room and like, like stand in like, <laughs> stand in like a power pose and like feel the confidence coming through you. And then you'd go into your day and you'd like somehow magically exude more confidence than you felt. The awkward part is like two years later, actual psychology proved that that wasn't working that way. For real. And so all these people are like standing in their underwear, setting a timer for two minutes every day, and it's not necessarily doing that for them. It's called pseudo-psychology, and so they found out later that wasn't really working. So if you're a power poser, totally cool. Everyone's welcome here. It just might not be doing the thing you think it's doing. That's all I'm saying. But you see how there's all these leadership theories, all of these ideas of what it looks like to be a leader, and it's not necessarily that they're wrong. And what I mean by that is if you do some of these things, people might follow you. If you want to get ahead in the world, some of these things, these very popular theories, they, they make sense. That's how in our cultures, in the cultures of this world, sometimes what I call the little kingdoms of this world, that's how you get ahead and that's how you have people follow you. But Jesus takes so much of what seems like conventional wisdom of leadership and turns it upside down as he's the leader of the kingdom of God as opposed to all the little kingdoms. Some people refer to the kingdom of God as the upside down kingdom because of Jesus turning everything on its head and saying, you might lead this way, but I show you a different way. And I think this is an important conversation for us because of uh, the reality that Jesus comes into the world and engages the world in a way that is kind of subversive to the way that what might seem right to us on the surface of things. Perhaps you've noticed this. So this week I want to talk about Jesus as a servant leader. Jesus as a servant leader, and then we'll talk about a different aspect of Jesus' leadership next week. And what I'm hoping you walk away with today, if you hear anything that I'm saying, is just that you would have a deeper understanding of what Jesus' role as servant leader is in your life and how that is 100% coming from his deep love for us. There isn't an, a hint of shaming. There isn't a hint of anything but this overwhelming sense of love in which Jesus wants us to be people who are served and loved by him and then serve and love a broken world. So I think Jesus displayed being a servant in many ways throughout the Gospels. Maybe you can just think through them right now if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus. Perhaps the, the penultimate moment is Jesus' death on the cross, right? The suffering servant is a phrase we often use to describe Jesus' servant leadership in that moment. But if you think back on all these stories, you see him healing people who could offer him nothing, 
right? You see him touching lepers and people who were considered unclean, people who had to walk through the streets declaring that they were unclean. Jesus walks right up to them. You see Jesus engaging with uh, people like women and children and the poor who were considered worthless in society at this time. But the story that I think we most tangibly see Jesus' servant leadership uh, and him kind of talking about what that looks like is when he washes the disciples' feet right before he's taken and killed, that night before he was, when he was betrayed and the night before he was killed. Might be a familiar story to some of you. It's in John 13, the, the part we're going to look at today if you have a Bible. Otherwise, we'll have it up here on the screen. But in this story, this is a, a moment that's often celebrated during Holy Week on Monday, Thursday, when we have so much that happens, Jesus is spending these last few hours with the people he's journeyed with for all those years. And, and, and they've gone through so much together. And Jesus has, it's almost like when you read the story, he's like packing it in. And maybe you'd feel that way too if you were a leader and you were thinking, I only have a little bit, a little while longer. And so the, the, the story of the Last Supper and where we have communion and the Eucharist come from this time, this last night. And then this experience of Jesus choosing to wash their feet happens right here in the story. And I think that for some of us, we think of this story and we think, well, it's relatively simple, like being a servant. But, but what I want to encourage you today is what is Jesus' invitation to you in this story today? Whether you've heard it a million times or this is the first time, what is Jesus' invitation to you? Because if Jesus is our leader, then it isn't about knowing more about him or understanding all the stories. It's about how we actually follow a God who's leading us in our lives. Jesus is our Savior, but also our Lord, which means leader. So what does it look like to let Jesus lead you even in this time through his word this morning? So I'm going to read it to you. And if it's familiar to you, maybe you want to just close your eyes and imagine that you were there. And just imagine how you might have felt. Um, and we'll have it up here on the screen if you want to follow along. So I'm going to read John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Oh, then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, or leader, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your leader and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
So as we think about this story, you're sitting at this table, you're having this meal, and relatively abruptly, Jesus gets up. It says it's right in the middle of the meal, okay? And he walks over to probably near a doorway where the basin and the towel would be kept. Typically, that washing would happen for a special meal that maybe there was a servant who was honoring some guests by washing their feet. It doesn't really make sense that he would do it in the middle of the meal. That's not the purpose of it. It was to wash before you ate. And so he goes and he takes it and he brings it over. And I'm sure that everybody's looking at him and they're just shocked. And, and I wonder about it because it's like, man, you've been with Jesus all this time, these probably three years. He's done shocking thing after shocking thing after shocking thing. But I think this would have been totally shocking to them. Getting up in the middle of the meal, grabbing the basin and the towel that you shouldn't even touch if you want to remain clean. Coming over and then not only that, but actually Jesus, Jesus, their leader, getting physically down below them with this towel, probably already dirty, towel wrapped around his waist to wash their dirty feet, physically putting himself below these people who have come to see him as a leader who should be elevated. This would have been shocking for them. I mean, they had probably seen slaves or servants do something like this, but they would never see a rabbi or a teacher or a leader of any kind do this ever. Most of these people have never seen a man do this. This kind of work, this kind of getting down and touching the dirty camel poop covered dusty feet of these people was something that was reserved only for, for servants, mostly female servants or children. Because in this culture, only females or children would ever be asked to stoop that low. And Jesus is down there, physically putting himself beneath these people who see him as their Lord and their teacher. It's important that we recognize here that Jesus isn't saying now as he commissions them to say you should do likewise. He's not saying, hey, anytime you're at a meal, you grab that basin and towel before anybody else does. He's not commissioning them into vocational foot washing. You know what I mean? He's not saying just the, the point of this is to wash people's feet so that somebody else doesn't have to do it. It's much deeper than that, isn't it? It's much deeper than that. I think there's four really significant things that I want to point out that happen in this story, okay? So I'll, I'll just go through them. The first thing is the significance of honor. The significance of honor. In this Eastern context, honor was a really big deal, and so was shame. And so here we have Jesus honoring these guests, honoring the disciples in this way. Chances are these men, and probably some women at this time in this meal, in my opinion, had never been honored like that before. They were, they were nobodies. <laughs> and here they are being honored in a way that they never have been by the person who would be considered the most important person in their life. Jesus is choosing to honor them. This is a hard thing for us to think about, in my opinion. Do we let Jesus honor us? Think about being one of those people there that day what would have been the resistance that would rise up in you to let Jesus honor you like that? I can imagine it myself, like the things that would come up in me about like, no, Jesus, not, no, 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 don't, no, don't touch this part of me. Like, don't honor me like this. I'm not worthy of that. Perhaps some of you would feel that way. Can we receive honor? Could they receive honor? The second significance, I think, is the significance of humility in this moment. I think we can all agree Jesus was displaying radical humility by washing their feet, right? But not only that, he was asking from them 
radical humility. It's humbling to let this person who is your hero get down and and wash your feet in a way that it's easier when it's a servant because you don't even have to think about their name, much less their humanity, because that's the way you treated people like that at that time. And so to have to let another human being whom you revere do that is humbling, isn't it? We hear Peter have this rebuttal, don't we? Let me just read a little bit of what he said in verse 6. When Jesus gets to Simon Peter, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand Peter, man, this guy, he's always just like talking back. No, no, seriously, no. You're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And he says, you need to let me do this or you have no part with me. And then you see Peter switch real quick, don't you? Oh, 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 cool. Well, if it's going to be part, being part of your thing, then I want you to wash my whole body. He gets super hyperbolic. Do we think that was humility in Peter that suggested that? Or do you think that was just the flip side of his pride? Jesus had told him he was going to be a leader. He was going to be, uh, he, he renamed him Rock because the church was going to be built on Peter's words of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he's like, not my feet, don't wash my feet. The significance here of humility is bold. I think it's important for us. I would want every single one of you to recognize that God made you with purposes that are significant in this world that you're not an accident, that there are things that God has prepared for you to do that might even seem insignificant to you, but they are significant to God. In the places that you are right now, you don't have to wait. But if we get to a spot where we think that that means that we are then more significant than anybody else, that the least of these are below us in some way, do you see how Jesus is radically flipping that concept on its head? And we do that, don't we? We almost without thinking put people in this hierarchical structure of who is the least of these and who deserves the least attention and who deserves more of our attention, etc. And here we see Jesus modeling, just validating even the role of the, the people who were considered the least of these by taking on their role. We have completely lost the plot if we get to a spot where we think that Jesus' honor and service of us and his humility towards us means that we then elevate ourselves above other people. And we can do that in tangible ways, but guys, we do this spiritually too. My, I'll, just, I'll just call out my faith community on this. We've got some spiritual elitism problems where we treat other people like they don't get it and we are more enlightened and we really understand this and we have lots of degrees or whatever the thing is. This is not Jesus. It's not about forgetting that you know these things or not appreciating the education you have or the ability to read. But spiritual elitism, this idea of being above, that is not Jesus. That's not what he's doing here. He's showing so tangibly the opposite of coming up under and serving. The final thing, I think, or the third thing, is the significance of cleansing, okay? So this is a, it's hard for us to totally wrap our heads around what was going on here because we don't live under the purity rituals of ancient Judaism. If you do, sorry if I just said that you didn't, but most of us don't. So most of us don't live under the ancient Jewish purity rituals of which they were exhaustive. Okay, people, there was, there was multiple ways in which you were supposed to wash, et cetera, et cetera, for you to actually be able to do anything, as simple as offering up a prayer or being a person who were to, to be uh, presiding over anything or really doing anything. You had all these purity rituals. You can read all about it. 
And so Jesus doing what he's doing here is kind of hearkening that reality in these Jewish folks' lives. This idea that purity is something that you should desire, that you should want, that you need to pursue, that you need to work for. And that if you become unclean in some way, you could become permanently unclean, or if you become unclean in some way, you have to do specific rituals to be able to get back in. And here Jesus, by taking this basin and this towel, is saying, yeah, yeah, I know about the purity rituals, people. They don't work that way. It's only through me that you can achieve and be and exist in any sort of purity. Of course, our spiritual experience of baptism now represents the reality that there is no way that we can pursue the purity that God hopes for us in our lives. You can't. Every, every effort of a human to try to achieve purity will ultimately end in vain. And here Jesus is saying, I am going to wash you. I need to do this. Peter, you need to let me do this for you. The significance here of cleansing is real. And then finally, the significance of love. This is like I said from the beginning. I'd hope that you'd see that Jesus is doing this action out of reckless love for his disciples. Out of reckless love for the world, the broken world that Jesus came to save. He's even loving his enemy through this action, isn't he? Judas. He's going to wash this guy's feet even though Judas is the one that's going to betray him to his death. Man, <laughs> that's hard. But here's the thing. Jesus is doing this because he loves them and his love is not something that, that is supposed to stay with them. It's supposed to overflow out of their lives onto the people that they're going to be called to love. It doesn't end with them. You see it right here, uh, starting in verse... 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your leader, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. It's not supposed to just end with him. But do you see how it had to start with Jesus? Jesus could have given marching orders. Go serve people. Wash their feet like the people who do that. He could have pointed at the basin and not dealt with it. But he wasn't giving marching orders. He was showing them the reality that it has to start with him, that they have to receive his honor, receive his humility, receive his love, or they can't go and do it. They just can't. They won't be able to sustain it. They won't have the reservoir of love needed to be able to go on and do what he did. That's why he's so adamant that even Peter, in all his arrogance, needed to receive this from him. The posture of a servant is the posture of love. Posture of a servant is a posture of love. This is why Peter says to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, you have to let me do this for you or you have no part with me. He's saying like you have no part with my mission because what is my mission about? Service and love. And you won't have any, it's not about power and authority, it's about service and love. And if you're gonna do this with me, you gotta let me do this for you. Think about what Peter was gonna face over those next 24 hours. Think about what he was gonna go through. He had no idea how Badly he needed Jesus to do this for him. So that in that moment, the third time he denies him, he would know I could face Jesus again. I mean, the guy went through so much, he needed this. Do you see at this point how Jesus' disruption of conventional leadership is happening through this action? This is a main point of disrupting what people would typically see as a powerful leader. So, you see, it's not about being surrounded by the most powerful influencers so that people will know you're great. Jesus disrupts that 
pretty significantly here by washing the feet of some pretty insignificant, probably mostly teenage disciples who have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> much less the great influencers that you might spend your time with. Jesus is uh, honoring them as guests. Current measures in our world and most of our cultures of success in leadership looks like how much you've accomplished, right? And I'm not necessarily saying it's bad, but we're looking for what's on our resume, how much we can achieve, how much we can gain. That is how you measure, are you succeeding? Jesus' measurement is turned completely on its head. Because his measure of success is whether these guys and gals were going to be successful. Think about it. If they're going to come after him, then his measure of success is their success. He says in chapter 14, uh, not that lo much longer that night, later that night, he says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to go to the Father. Jesus measured his success as a leader by how many about how people, the, the people that he led and their ability to live lives of service. Let me, let me say this really intentionally. Jesus measured his leadership success by the success of his followers, followers' ability to live out lives of service empowered by his love. That's how he measured his success. It wasn't by how many people that he healed or if he was befriended by the powerful. The powerful people all wanted to kill him, so that wasn't going to be a good measure of success for him. His measure of success was on his followers' ability to live lives of service empowered by self-giving love that came from him to them. Those people getting their dirty feet washed by their hero that night, they were not perfect. They were just a bunch of broken people, just like you and me. They were nobodies, just like you and me. Nobody knew who they were. But I think, in my opinion, that Jesus' leadership was a success based on this measure. Because every single one of them, except for one, went on to give their entire life to being about this kingdom of love. Every single one of them, except for one, gave the rest of their lives for the cause of disrupting the leadership of all the little kingdoms of the world. They gave it all for the cause of this reckless love that they experienced through Jesus. Part of their success, I think, is that 2,000 years later, we're all here talking about what they experienced that night and what it means to us. To me, that's, that means that Jesus' measure of success, that his followers would be able to do what he did, happened. Not perfectly, but happened. Jesus asks them that provocative question, do you understand what I've done for you? Could any of them in that moment say yes? No. I mean, there's no way they could understand the reality of what Jesus had just done for them. Imagine Jesus asking us this today, do you understand what I have done for you? I don't think we could say yes completely, but we can begin to live as though we are wanting to understand what it means to respond to this invitation that you hear in this story for us to go and do likewise, but first you have to let me do this for you. I think there's two relatively simple ways to respond if we see Jesus inviting us into this story. The first one I think is just to check your posture. Can we check our posture? If a posture of a servant is a posture of love, perhaps one of the most important things we see through Jesus' whole life, but in this story particularly, is that he takes such a different posture. Jesus is not a power poser, right? <laughs> he doesn't need to do that to prove that he has confidence or authority. He's not a power over leader. I mean, think of just the different aspects of Jesus' life and what you see. I mean, like I said, on the cross, you probably see the most significant 
posture, this posture of openness, a posture of surrender, of giving it all for what you love. Jesus open wide saying, I love you, I'm here for you, I'm gonna give everything for you. Sometimes we call this a cruciform posture, the cruciform life. Leaders today, if I were to say metaphorically what's their posture, I think it looks something like this. Looking down on other people, closed off, backing away, not coming towards, not being open. But how often do we find ourselves in this posture? Partly because we're scared. There's a lot. It's hard. Things have been difficult. We don't know if we can trust people. We have a hard time. I mean, we feel like we might get taken advantage of, and so we want to back off and, and, and close ourselves off. I think Jesus understood the idea of what happens when you could be taken advantage of, when you open up your heart and your life. You might be. You probably will be. But the, the cruciform posture is one of openness. You also see another posture in Jesus' life, I think, of a reaching out posture. He wasn't off away hoping maybe someone will come to him, but if somebody needed to experience love, he reached out to them. He touched the leper. He turned to the woman of blood and spoke to her. He found himself at a time when he knew there was a woman at a well who needed to be spoken to. He was reaching out to heal the people who could do nothing for him. He had this reaching out posture, didn't he? The cruciform posture the reaching out posture. And then finally, I think in this story, you see the lowering of yourself posture, where he literally is getting himself beneath these people who had followed him. These three postures are so significant because clearly they're not just physical, right? And metaphorically, what does it look like for us to be people who have a cruciform posture in our families, in our church family, what does it look like for us to have a reaching out posture in our neighborhood? What does it look like for us to have the lowering of ourselves posture in the places we might have power, like our workplace or in society based on the color of our skin? What does the lowering of yourself choice look like for you? The cruciform posture, the reaching out posture, the lowering of ourselves posture, what does that look like for the church to be that posture in the world? I... I have to tell you, I have, have lots of places I'm encouraged by this because I see people checking their posture all the time. I see so many folks that I admire so deeply who I see checking these postures in their life. I have a friend named Kelsey who has three kids. Two of them have special needs, but she never acts like anybody is bothering her. She just treats everybody like they're the biggest deal in the world, and, and those kids are so loved. I just see that coming out of her life. It's just a posture of service and love. My friend Dennis has a lot of important vocational roles, but I watch all the time, he never acts like he's too important for somebody, ever. I've got people who I know who lead in areas where there's VIPs, and then there's like the people who take out the trash, and they treat these people the same. They don't see these people who the world elevates as more important to be treated in a way that's different, but that they level it out and say, all of you are people worthy of love and respect and time and patience. I see this kind of thing all the time. You, you can, you've probably noticed it's a pretty divisive season in the country, in the world, in the church. And I am so encouraged when I see people, even as they're, they're debating something that they're passionate about, having this like service posture about how they do it. People who really believe what they believe, but they're reaching out and they're saying, I want this to be about love and about service. I love that. That is so inspiring to me. 
We can check our posture physically and spiritually the way that Jesus modeled. There's just like easy ways in our everyday life. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm just even with like little kids. I don't have any kids of my own. But man, what does it look like to stop adulting for two seconds and like get down and talk to them and listen to them? People who are literally marginalized at times to be seen and not heard. What if we listen to them? How about things like how we treat wait staff and people in the service industry? Some of you are probably in the service industry. You can tell the difference between the people who seem so powerful and important when they're at your restaurant or coming to your bar or whatever, right? Compared to the people who have humility and want to know you and care that you're a person. The thing about the wait, the wait staff and all of the service industry, man, what if they went on strike tomorrow? Everyone would lose their minds, right? All of our latte-obsessed minds. It would just be a total disaster. <laughs> Because these people are serving. What does it look like to have a posture towards these folks? How about with people that you lead? Are you powering over them? How about with your own boss, who might just be a total pain, okay? But maybe it's not easy to be them because they don't make everybody happy because they're not chocolate, right? And they're, it's wearing on them. What would a posture, this posture look like? How about people who look different than us, who vote different than us? who have different opinions than us, who have a different culture than us or a different way of talking and being than us. What is our posture? I think Jesus is inviting us into something that seems kind of small, like our posture, but it's actually something huge. This is what Jesus was modeling. So then I think the second and maybe the most important way to respond to Jesus in this story is to actually receive Jesus' self-giving love that he wants to offer you. Jesus wants to offer this love, and it's not something that you can earn. We so easily believe that we can do something to earn God's love, and then that we can do things to lose God's love, right? This is Peter in this story. He's like, no, 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 Jesus, I do things for you. I'm the one that serves you. I resonate with Peter, you guys. I don't want God to have to do things for me. I'm kind of like, I got this until I need you. I'm going to do things for you, <laughs> This is how this goes here, God. This is how this goes here, Jesus. This is what Peter was struggling with. Some of you struggled to receive love from Jesus because you get yourself in a spot where you think you can earn it or you have to keep working until you can deserve it. And others of you, you've given up on trying to deserve it because you know, like, man, listen, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. I'm not worthy of this. There's nothing that could happen that would make me worthy. You've gotten yourself into a spot where you really believe that you're not lovable. You're wrong. This story proves that you're wrong. There is nothing you can do or has been done to you that would take the self-sacrificial, self-giving love from you, the place of honor that Jesus wants to place you in because you are God's kid. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. You are heirs to the kingdom of God with Jesus. You are worthy of this love because of Jesus in your life, and he's trying to prove it. Do you see him trying to prove it? If we are having a hard time loving these people in our lives, perhaps it's because we haven't really received to the extent that we need to the love that Jesus has for us because we will run out of it, won't we? Those people, they're so hard to love. We need that love to be poured into our life so it can overflow in our lives to the people around us. We will run out of it on our own. We have to let him love us. Let me do this, Jesus says. You can't be a part of my mission of love and sacrifice and service if you don't let me do this for you. So I want to just close by 
having a moment for us to have a little bit of imaginative prayer, just a minute. I want you to imagine that you were there that night with Jesus. So close your eyes. Imagine that you're there. You're sitting at this table. You don't realize all that's going to happen that weekend. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up. You have no idea what he's doing. Why is he doing this? He goes over and gets a dirty towel and a, and a basin, and you can't believe it. You're almost shocked that he's coming up to you to do this thing that just seems so weird for him to do this, but he gets down. He physically gets below you. Jesus, the God of the universe, down at your feet, your dirty feet, and tenderly and and. Lovingly, he washes them and dries them with a towel and he raises his gaze up to your eyes and makes eye contact with you and says, do you understand what I have done for you? And in your heart, you know you don't. You know you can't fully, but you want to. And Jesus says, I'm doing this for you because you need to receive this honor. You need to receive this humility and you need to receive this reckless love because I want you to go do this as well. And you're not gonna be able to do it if you don't receive this from me. And in your mind, as you think about the people that you'd have to love, the people that are the hardest to love come to your mind. And Jesus almost being able to read your mind, of course, because he's God says, yeah, yep, even them, even that one, even the hardest person to love, I can give you the love you need to love even them, but you have to soften your heart and let me love you. You have to let go of the pride and the arrogance of being able to do it on your own and let me love you. You have to resist the shame that overwhelms you and let your heart be open and not covered with shame so that I can love you and serve you because this mission that I'm on, I'm inviting you to join me, but you can't do it unless you let me do this for you. You have no part in me unless you let me do this for you. So Jesus, in this moment, wherever we've come from this week, maybe we have felt really loved by you, maybe we haven't. God, meet us in this place. Soften our hearts. Allow us to receive from you anew the kind of reckless love that can overflow out of our lives onto the people around us, down to the ones who are the hardest for us to love. And may you receive all glory and honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.